You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Elon Musk, he offloads another $3.6 billion worth of Tesla shares. That's after he assured that he was done getting rid of Tesla stock, how this could be reflecting the pressure on the finances of Twitter. Plus, the US Senate has voted unanimously to ban TikTok from all government-issued phones and devices again. Details on the real impact for the Chinese-owned platform. And former President Donald Trump teased a major announcement just weeks after declaring a third presidential run. Instead, he's hawking digital trading cards in an NFT market. Details on that one a little bit later in the hour. But first, let's go even more micro. She teased us there. She told us about Tesla because, of course, we know the stock has been under pressure and maybe a little bit more of evidence as to why. Because Elon Musk, the biggest holder of Tesla stock, has been selling yet more, $3.6 billion worth, in fact, of shares, bringing the total amount he's offloaded since late last year to almost $40 billion. Bloomberg's Bailey Lipschultz, I'm pleased to say, is here for more. And it's interesting, Bailey, of course, we were just wondering why it was under pressure. Many feeling perhaps a retail investor, which is such an important buyer for Tesla, was a little bit worried about his distraction about his recent other purchases. But now it seems to be laid clear that maybe the selling pressure is coming from him himself. Exactly. When you look at where the market was trading Monday and Tuesday, broadly moving higher in Tesla, the biggest drag on the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 in those two days. Again, this is kind of a bit of sounding an alarm for investors. It's still those concerns about what is Elon focused on? Where is his head at? Obviously, space SpaceX has been successful. Tesla has been a roaring success. But did he bite off more than he could chew with, t- with Twitter in particular? Again, with massive debt loads, how does that impact the fundamental business of Tesla? Again, given how large of a stake he has and whether or not he's going to continue to sell shares, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, that he did say earlier in the year that he was done selling. And then $3.5 billion is not done selling. Now, Elon Musk himself can be a bit of a macroeconomic commentator. And he sort of laid a few, shall we say, trails, breadcrumbs for us, saying, look, you should be worried about debt right now if you're seeing the rates go up from the Fed. What about his debt? What about Twitter's debt? Well, that's the thing, and that's kind of, to your point, interest rates are going higher. When you look at Twitter, when you look at that takeout, that does come with massive debt load. That does come with pretty high interest rates that are going to continue to need to be paid. So that's the main question is, is Elon selling these shares to buy some of that debt? Is he doing it to invest more in Twitter? Is he doing that to, you know, help cover some of those interest payments? No one really knows. It's, I don't think anyone really 
kind of understands what Elon's doing other than Elon, <laughs> but there are so many questions just given how tied these companies can be given where they are right now and where they're trading. And again, with this selling pressure that we've seen so far this week for Tesla stock in particular. Many call him an entrepreneur, a visionary. He seems to have to be an investment banker at the moment as well, it would seem. We thank you as always, Bailey Lipschultz, on the money when it comes to all things Tesla. Meanwhile, let's again turn to those broader tech valuations. Let's again turn to the macro that Elon himself has been commenting on. Let's talk to Kayla Brune, Morning Consult economic analyst. She's here to give us basically your read at the moment. We've had the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of England, all hiking rates to the tune of half a percentage point. They're all, well, apart from the Bank of England, maybe sounding pretty hawkish about where rates have to go to tackle inflation. Give our audience, who is so aware of the macro implications on their holdings, what this means in terms of overall desire to be buying stocks right now. So good evening. Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, with the U.S. at least with the Fed this week, I don't think the surprise was really with the amount that they raised rates this week. Everyone was really expecting about a half point increase. Uh, but what I think where people were paying a little more attention and were a little surprised was with how firm they were with their language about their intent to continue raising rates and where they expected rates to be over the next year. Uh, I think with the two consecutive months of positive inflation surprises. Some were thinking that that message would be softened a little bit, uh, but we didn't see too much sign of that this week so far. When we got the Federal Reserve rate hike, we also got updated perspective on where they see the economy going, where they see what are called terminal rates going, how high invest they overall at the Federal Reserve think rates will hit 5.1% overall. What are the implications of that from your perspective on the labor market in particular, where we're already seeing cracks from the technology perspective. Certainly heading into 2023, the labor market is something to watch closely, and I'm sure the Fed will be watching it very closely. It is one factor that could potentially affect the trajectory of the rate increases, potentially have them uh, change their, their path, especially if unemployment were to pick up significantly, which we really haven't seen so far. Now, one question is how much of that has to do with the fact that labor force participation has remained pretty low, uh, and that's kind of an open question. Where, where should labor force partition, participation be after the pandemic? Uh, but if we continue to see unemployment stay so low, then that, that gives them a little more leeway to continue with the rate increases. Some of the nervousness in the market today and I, I think in many ways we're attuned to the market being, oh, well, bad news is good news. The Federal Reserve will have to pump on the brakes. We therefore buy stocks. Today, there was just bad news ultimately in the economy when it came to retail sales. I know you look a lot at the consumer, Kayla. Just talk to us about how resilient they are when many are looking at e-commerce in particular or on this show. That's another thing to really keep an eye on. And each month I really look at three sort of indicators for consumer spending. Um, we have at Morning Consult our own spending data that we get to look at the first week of the month. Then middle of the month today we get retail sales, which is much more goods focused. Uh, and then at the end of the month, of course, we have personal consumption expenditures, which is really the broadest measure. Um, but two out of the three this month so far have shown a pretty strong negative signal for November. Um, actual decreases in spending in both real and nominal terms. 
which is a bit of a reversal from what we've seen in October, certainly, and really in 2022 overall, which was that consumer spending has been holding up pretty well. Mm. It's a huge part of growth overall. So to the extent that it does so in 2023, that's also an important thing to keep an eye on. But as consumers work their way through some of the savings they'd accumulated during the pandemic, it's it's unclear how long that, that boost is going to last. Kayla, it really does feel a really extraordinary time to be trying to read the tea leaves of this U.S. economy, this global economy. On so many ways, we feel the resilience. We see the jobs data just showing there is still tightness there. But everywhere else we look, it feels like softening. Can you kind of give us a grade on the health of the U.S. economy right now? Where is your where is your head at? That's a great question. I'd probably give it a B. <laughs> I think I think we're seeing a lot of mixed signals, but I mean, it's, it's hard to give it a grade because there just is so much uncertainty. Um, there's a lot of moving parts, as there always are, but there's certainly some things that I look at as kind of like an hourglass running out. And the question is, is inflation, which is now heading in the right direction, is that going to kind of fix itself before we run out of time with savings, before we run out of time with this strong, healthy labor market? So there's these competing forces, yeah. and it's it's unclear really who's going to win out in the in the next year. Well, I love how you gave us some of the key data that you keep an eye on. So thank you for that, Kayla Brune, Morning Consult Economic Analyst there for your macro perspective. So the U.S. Senate voted to ban TikTok from all government-issued phones and other devices. That says, of course, the Biden administration is still considering restrictions on the Chinese-owned platform. Joining us with the inside track is Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. And just talk us through the impact of the Senate vote. It's happened once before in a previous time. Just talk to us about whether this really matters. Yeah, it matters to the extent that this is kind of continued pressure on this national security review. Of course, this bill would have to pass in the House and be signed by the president to to come into action. But, Caroline, I think there's another point of context this week um, that just like underpins um, the momentum against TikTok in Congress right now. That bill passed at the same time Marco Rubio and some colleagues in the House of Representatives also introduced a bill that would ban TikTok outright. So Hmm. Congress seems to be getting a little bit impatient, or at least these very vocal members who have been anti-TikTok are getting a little bit impatient with this national security review that's going on um, under the Biden administration um, with TikTok to try to kind of come to an agreement of how to get TikTok to work in the United States in a way that makes folks who care about national security, who are worried about the Chinese government's influence on TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, how to make sure that it's operating here in a way that's really safe for you U.S. users and their data. So this vocal group um, that we've heard throughout the past few months, uh, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, um, Mm -hmm. in Congress being really loud, are now really taking action, Caroline. And that's where I think there's a little bit of an inflection point here um, for some of this momentum against TikTok. Just talk us through that. And it's interesting because we went to our own audience. I know that you're often, I'm very pleased to say, joining some of our Twitter spaces, the conversation. You're very active on Twitter. And we've gone to our own audience on Twitter, asking them via the Bloomberg technology handle, whether they think this might soon impact their own phone, their own use of TikTok. And actually, 62% did think that the ban is coming to their phone next. What are the ways in which TikTok itself is trying to navigate these waters and trying to ensure that they're regulated, but perhaps regulated in a way that means they're still on our phone? 
So aside from making kind of promises that data will not get into the hands of the Chinese government, they're working on some things behind the scenes with U.S. tech company Oracle to basically migrate all of the data from U.S. users onto service in the onto servers in the U.S. So they say that that plus some auditing uh, by Oracle on their content moderation policies, uh, they expect that's enough to keep the data safe. Now that process, that review, has kind of come to a standstill. Bloomberg has reported that's because of the Department of Justice saying that the current state of the agreement is not up to snuff with them. So um, obviously there are some folks in some of these really important agencies involved in this review that say it's not enough. We also heard FBI Director Ray come out in recent weeks saying that um, you know it's not quite there yet. So um, that's what TikTok has promised they would do. Yeah. Um, whether or not that ends up being the end result, again, these voices kind of pushing against this process is not a good sign for that ideal situation for TikTok. We thank you always, Alex. It was a great newsletter that you put out, all things TikTok banned today. And we thank you for just walking us through some of your thinking, Alex Barenka there. Meanwhile, let's talk about the administration's impact on sort of technology elsewhere, particularly when it comes to M&A, because Microsoft president, Brad Smith, he says the company has a solution to resolve issues surrounding its potential acquisition of Activision Blizzard and still expects that the deal will go through in 2023. He spoke with Bloomberg's Jennifer Zabazaja in Washington, D.C. At the end of the day, these decisions are made under laws, not just under people. And the laws, whether you're talking about the United States, or the United Kingdom, or the European Union, are very clear. It's all about whether an acquisition will promote competition. Right. And in our view, we're competing with Sony, Microsoft, Xbox. If you put it head-to-head -head with Sony PlayStation, they have 70%, we have 30%. We're the small entrant. They have 286 exclusive titles, we have 59. We need some more first party games in order to be a healthier and stronger competitor. And we need to do it, of course, in a way that doesn't impede competition along the way. All of these concerns have basically focused on one title, a great title, a game, Call of Duty. But we've said we're prepared to commit contractually we're prepared to commit under a consent decree or an undertaking that that will be available for Sony on comparable terms to Xbox for the next decade. So I look at this and say, this will be good for competition and we have a solution to the one problem that seems to bother people the most. And my only real complaint or concern, if you will, about where we are in Washington, D.C., is that we had the Federal Trade Commission vote to block this without giving us even a single meeting at which to sit down with the FTC staff and talk about the consent decree proposal and solution we had put on the table. I don't think that is appropriate. I don't think that's right. I don't think we should have governments rejecting potential solutions without at least first having a real conversation about them. That's not a recipe that will advance competition. So what happens next then? Well, we have a process in Washington, D.C., and it's called lawyers get to go argue before a judge under the law, an administrative law judge. And this still goes forward in other countries. Right. It has a long ways to go. We'll see. Look, nobody ever has a crystal ball in which you can predict the future with 100% certainty. But when I look at what this acquisition will bring, 
I think it will bring good things to the marketplace. It will definitely be good, in our view, for people who develop games, consumers who play games. That's, after all, the real focus of what competition law is all about. Anticipating the deal to go through in 2023, or? Well, we have a period of time. We originally said when we announced this in January of this year, 2022, that we were looking at it in 2023, and that's still the way we look at it. Microsoft President Brad Smith, along with our own Jennifer Zavazaja there. Coming up, about 200 companies based in China and indeed in Hong Kong, they may no longer be facing a threat of being booted off American stock exchanges. More on why next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's a COVID story familiar around the world, and China is not immune. As restrictions ease, cases rise, and workers call in sick. Half the currency traders of one Chinese bank in Beijing called in sick on Monday. Soaring absenteeism is slowing down the process of executing and confirming trades, aggravating the usual seasonal dip in activity seen at the end of the year. The sudden uptick in traders staying home sick is seen as one of the reasons for a drop in onshore yuan dollar spot volumes to levels not seen since April. There are signs of normality in China with people returning to the streets and public transport and signs of disruption as well with long lines outside hospitals and people struggling to find medicine. The road out of lockdowns was never going to be smooth. Financial institutions have been largely left to themselves in terms of navigating that road with little official guidance from authorities. Bloomberg understands some lenders are retaining the split teams approach used over the past three years, but most are just advising workers who feel sick to stay home. And as that advice is heeded, short staffing and slowdowns are becoming part of the new COVID normal in China. Paul Allen, Bloomberg. Let's stay on China now because, well, maybe trading's down a bit, but actually some stocks rallied today because the threat of being delisted off the U.S. stock exchanges is kind of easing for some big names in particular, Alibaba, JD.com. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Yushin Shen, who covers the Chinese markets, covers some of these names. And the reason they rallied is because mm-hmm. we've got an update as to whether or not 
or they would be delisted. And it looks as though, is the threat diminishing somewhat? Yes, for sure. So I would say this is a very important step of resolving this long-standing dispute, auditing dispute between US and China. And an investor even described this to me as an early Christmas gift <laughs> because they, they saw like delisting was like the biggest concern as they see for the Chinese ADR names from Alibaba to JD.com. And what PCAOB's update today, basically. PCAOB being? Uh, <laughs> don't know, ultimately what the sort of authority the, that decides. The, it's like the auditing watchdog yeah. on the US side. So they put out a statement about, they now finally were able to get the full auditing uh, access of this Chinese company. And it's the first time in the history because before Beijing was like trying to deny the access for national security concerns. So Beijing, and remember Beijing and Washington reached out like a preliminary deal during the summertime, but then PCAOB sent staff to do a round of inspection check just to make sure uh, this company delivered was a promise, right? So this is an update after the inspection and the market has been waiting on it for a while. And it's a positive outcome, so for sure that uh, the stocks like Alibaba and JD.com were all like rallying and at one point at 3.5%, it's like buckling uh, the, the, the overall market slump we see today among the tech names. Very briefly, is that it though? Are we, are we done? Are we risk-free? Christmas presents <laughs> abound? No, I would say probably we are not there yet because PCAOB is going to restart the clock for three years. They will continue to keep these companies under check, right, for more years to come. And SEC also want, you know, there's still more auditing or inspection works to be done. But uh, overall, it's moving towards a very, uh, I would say, positive direction, right? Certainly, that was the stock move today. Yeah. Thank you, always abreast of these things. Yishin Shen of Bloomberg. There will be companies, I think, continues uh, some layoffs. For companies that maybe have too many people, them laying off uh, talent is an opportunity for other companies who actually need more tech talent. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And that, of course, is Nicholas Zinstrom, founder of Skype, as you know, and also the CEO of the European venture capital firm Atomico, talking about tech layoffs. And let's keep talking about that because, well, the wave of mass tech layoffs has sparked perhaps an exodus of tech talent to other sectors. Millennium Management Global Head of Talent Acquisition, that's John Tellerico, is here to talk about well, how alternative asset management, in particular his giant with $58 billion in assets under management, is becoming perhaps a leading destination in these sorts of workers. Just talk to us, John, about how many tech-related roles you've hired for this year and how many more you've still got to fill. Happy to. Caroline, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, we've put 294 technologists, I think the number is, to work this year with 100 openings still listed or 100 plus on our career site. Uh, in 25 years of me running technology talent acquisition programs, I've only seen a few of these disruptions, but I'm happy to say Millennium can be a welcome destination for those finding themselves on the job market. So talk to us about at your shop and, and others, and I'm sure if rivals might be doing something similar at the moment, what kind of candidates are you looking for? What type of roles are you filling? 
Great question. First, it starts across all levels, whether you're beginning your career or whether you want to be in a senior global position. We're recruiting across all of those levels. We also recruit across all of those technical competencies that I personally think are so attractive, not only software engineering and full stack engineering, but security engineering and cloud engineering and these, these roles that involve unbelievable amounts of data within this industry that, that make things really, really excited, uh, exciting. And so um, over sort of a a fairly typical technology stack, we seek those individuals that um, can solve problems, that have grit, that are scrappy across a wider range of opportunities. Okay, so I can see if I was a technologist coming perhaps upended by the fact that I've just been let go by one of the big technology companies and thinking, oh, I can get intellectual stimulation with Millennium. What about culture? Because many would say perhaps... Uh, in an uninformed or naive way, but certainly I would go, oh, finance on one side, you know, hardworking, long hours, perhaps in the office, yeah. technology, yeah. more softer culture. What are you having to decide and, and educate people about in terms of your culture? Well, I'm really happy you, you said that because in my opinion, what we offer in the aggregate is, is really powerful and it's really special. It's not only that technology opportunity, it's not only the connection to our businesses, it's not only the impact you can provide, it's the respect for the individual and the collaboration on site. And the fact that that respect and the way we go about working with each other is extremely positive. Mm -hmm. And I'd love the chance to sort of talk to those who may think that would be otherwise. Okay, so let's just think about being in the office or yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, if I'm used to a hybrid culture or indeed a completely fully remote one, how are you thinking about where the talent is that you can hire? So, first of all, from a location perspective, globally, we're, we're building out um, Miami, Dublin, Tel Aviv, Bangalore, uh, and Miami's going to be a big tech hub for us. We also have traditional opportunity in New York and London and Singapore, but we're also making sure that we um, are, are very, very focused on making you know, this talent, knowing there's some flexibility in our model. Right? We, are, we are enjoying returning to the office. That collaboration is really important to us. We can be flexible as well, as well as global location flexibility. When you say Miami, I immediately think of crypto. And is, does it matter which sector, which part of technology? Because basically, it's, I mean, technology is horizontal, it's not vertical anymore. But does it matter what type of company these people are coming from? In short, no. If the technology skills align, those cultural attributes, the sort of degree of problem solving, of course that's interesting to us, but whether it's tech sector, crypto, or existing sector, or any other talent that's interested in what we're doing, the domain is not a prerequisite. I've had lots of conversations with people in finance, particularly those who are trying to hire talent, about the need for diversity, the need for pipeline. Yeah. I'm, I imagine technology fights that good fight too and worried about its own pipeline, ensuring that they have yeah. diversity in the workplace. How are you thinking about that when you're starting to hire these technologists? Yeah. It's a great question. It's extremely important to us. Um, we've seen really great uh, uh, activity in terms of females in the technology space and going into universities at, at greater rates and coming out of those programs at greater rates. Um, and, and cultural and racial diversity incredibly important to us. It's all about diversity of thought, and we get that from all those different pockets. So heavy focus on all of that, whether it's uh, through affinity networks, through paid-for programs, just through making sure we are out in those right pockets with, uh, with, with folks that help us as third parties to identify where those talent, that talent may sit, it's really important to us and, and it's going to make us better. 
what are the ways in which you're having to be creative in the way you hire? Because as I said, I, I'm pretty sure Millennium, you're out here talking about this, but I'm sure Brevin Howard, some other big asset managers, alternative yeah. asset managers are doing something yeah. similar. How do you set yourself apart? How are you looking for alternative types of people to come to you? So at Millennium, in my opinion, and specific to my organization, I think we do a really good job of casting a really wide net. We need, we need the best talent. So whether it's having strategic relationships with search firms, whether it's using LinkedIn, whether it's using our vast employee network, uh, whether it's thinking about where these pools of talent may be that could be attractive to us and then advertising accordingly to those pools of talent, there's nothing that you could probably think of that we don't do. We, we want to get the very best talent, and so there's nothing in terms of a strategy we wouldn't try. John, great to have some time with you. Come back. Thank you so much. Keep us up to speed with how it's going. John Tallarico, Millennium Management, Global Head of Talent Acquisition there. Meanwhile, we want to stick with this theme, this issue, because, well, actually, the move of tech talent to other sectors is not the only impact to these latest layoffs. In fact, immigrants found themselves in perhaps a more precarious situation. H-1B visas, for one, is an example I think of, that ticking clock attached to when you lose your role. I'm pleased to say to talk us through it, maybe relieve some anxiety or not, is Sophie Alcorn. She's an immigration lawyer based in Mountain View, California. You specialize in securing visas for tech workers. And talk to us, Sophie. I personally, anecdotal evidence, finally got my green card, sort of euphoria. There is an element, though, that before that, there was a worry. You know, my husband on an H-1B visa. He was nervous to a certain extent. How are you seeing H-1B visas and temporary talent being affected by these layoffs? Well, thank you, Caroline, for having me. And a huge congratulations to you on your green card. That's wonderful. And it's such an important milestone in the life journey of any immigrant who is trying to create something in the United States. Uh, people in tech, we just saw the numbers on the slide, the layoffs in November, over 50,000. I'm estimating that probably 20 to 30% of the laid off tech workers are on some sort of non-immigrant work visa, such as H-1B or L-1 or O-1. They haven't gotten a green card yet and they're somewhere in the process. And so what that means for them is they have this 60-day grace period. And if they can't find another job and get their papers filed in time or figure out another status, they have to leave the United States. Thousands of people affected here. So if he- Probably 5, 10, maybe more. Nobody really has the numbers, but well, it could easily be 10 to 15,000 of the world's most brilliant people poised yeah. to cause brain further brain drain in the United States. So how are companies being thoughtful about this? Some aren't that thoughtful. They just got to get rid of people. I'm sure some are out there thinking, okay, how can I, if you're working here in an immigrant visa, how can I protect you in some way? What are the ways companies are dealing with it? Well, when the layoffs started in November, like with Twitter, for example, there were just across the board layoffs, last day of employment, the word is cessation in the legal regulations. Uh, Some people will continue to get paychecks into January, but their 60-day clock started ticking in November. Mm. Fortunately, Uh, Some employers have started waking up to this immigration reality, and even if they have to make this difficult um, decision, 
based on economics to lay people off. I am starting to see more compassion in the layoff process for non-immigrants with employment lawyers creating different options like, hey, instead of a severance package, how about we agree to keep you working and keep you on payroll into this date in the future, and then your 60 days will start then. But look, you can start looking for a job now, and that'll try to help you get through the holidays and the hiring freezes and have a better chance of finding your next role so you can stay here in the United States with your family. So I am yeah. I am seeing compassion around the holidays, but I think it's still a big problem for thousands of people. Now, I'm not saying that social media and putting one's videos out there often stirs a lot of compassion. And interestingly, I did do previously a kind of a TikTok on the impacts on H-1B visa holders. And a lot of the responses were, good you know few more jobs for those who are actually american how are you seeing that evolving how are we thinking about the repercussions of this set of layoffs would it ever mean that companies are more reticent to go through the h1b visa process because they don't want to leave people in this sort of precarious situation if they have to make layoffs so it's economically very complicated and certainly the whole H-1B process and visas and immigration is a lightning rod for controversy in mm. this country. Employers are still economically incentivized to hire immigrants for a variety of economic structural reasons. Um, politically, when this comes up, there's always questions about, well, are H-1B holders taking jobs away from Americans or are American companies abusing H-1B holders? So these are all very important discussions to have. At a, a national level, I hope that immigration will continue. There's a, a, a story by the Washington Post just a few hours ago saying that due to the immigration slowdown over the last two years, 1.7 million immigrants haven't been able to come into the country, which is part of why we also have a shortage of available workers with the skill sets that we need. But from a holistic economic level for the country, immigrants are, are critical. They're brilliant. They pay full tuition to get masters and other you know PhDs from US colleges and universities. They have deep STEM knowledge, including artificial artificial intelligence, mm. which is so critical to creating startups, paying taxes, creating jobs for Americans, and technology powers our national security. And so we really yeah. have to think as a country if we want the next Apple, Google, and SpaceX to be founded in the United States or yeah. elsewhere, because those are some of the ramifications of these policies. Of course, Elon Musk himself, an immigrant to the US, Sophie Alcon. Thank you, Alcon Immigration Law founder and CEO really making it clear which big companies have been founded by those who came in and some sort of a visa. Meanwhile, coming up with the collapse of FTX, spooking some crypto traders, what will this mean for digital assets as 2023 draws closer? This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. 
like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Crypto, of course, in the spotlight amid the FTX scandal. Bearish traders, they're signaling that, look, crypto losses are likely to continue into next year too. Joining us now is Michael Safai, managing partner of quantitative trading firm Dexterity Capital, who can give us a really broad perspective. Not only, Michael, I'm sure we'll get into the nitty gritty of future regulation and all that good stuff, but talk to us about just trading at the moment, opportunities in the crypto space. Are institutions just pulling back? Yeah, I think it's a really quiet time in cryptocurrency right now. And for traders like us, who are high frequency and low latency, we depend on a lot of volumes. So we're not seeing that. And, you know, over the course of the past 18 months, a lot of traditional shops like the Hudson River Tradings or Citadels of the world have come into crypto. And I think they were doing great for a bit, but now they're finding there's not that much to go around anymore. And maybe they'll be thinking twice about whether they want to stick around next year. Okay, so talk to us about what you need with trading volumes. What is necessary to build back those trading volumes? Obviously, a little bit of desire to get in, a bit more of a bullish sentiment, maybe stocks to move. But... Is there something more within crypto itself that needs to come back to bring back the trading volumes? The number one thing we need is trust. People have to feel safe, especially retail investors and institutional traders like us, that if we're on an exchange, our, our money's going to stay there and that we can continue to trade successfully. That's the most important thing. And I think adjunct to trust, we need proper regulation. And that's something that guys like us have been crying out for for a long time. Unfortunately, this big disaster had to happen before you know, DC really started to take notice. Well, let's go first back to trust. There is still a lot of nervousness out there, FUD as the crypto world will call it, fear, uncertainty, and and a lot of that still surrounds some of the exchanges, whether it be the lending that might have been done on Genesis, whether it's what's happening over with Binance. What you're hearing from these exchanges and other lending protocols and the like, are you building trust? Are you feeling more confident around it or no? I think we're taking steps towards trust and we're seeing exchanges in particular doing more to create transparency, to say, hey, this is where our reserves are and you can go and verify on the blockchain that we actually have these assets. And that's a good first step, but we need to do more. I think we need to see full audits of exchanges and we need them to be accountable to regulators who can get inside the building and see what's actually happening with the balance sheets and with the assets. Okay, so talk to us about regulators because there's almost a bit of a squabble here in the US about who's going to be the key whether it's going to be the SEC, whether it's going to be the CFTC. But for me, as a bit of a European, I look at what's happening in Europe and they're already getting through some of this regulation and putting it into action. What do you make 
of what's happening globally. Yeah, and I think Europe's been very smart. The EU wants to capture a lot of this cryptocurrency market because long term they see a future there. So the legislation like MICA is a big help. It lays out exactly what the definitions of particular types of cryptocurrency assets are, whether it's a utility token, a security, or e-money. And they're also setting out requirements for a crypto service providers like exchanges and custodians and brokers so that, again, retail can feel safe and regulators can be sure that everyone's house is in order. Okay, that's got really interesting echo for me to what happened with GDPR, what happened with data, the fact that Europe did just get there faster, which is kind of extraordinary given there are, well, they're not one country, they're a grouping of different countries of very much diverse thought. Is this going to keep on happening? Is Europe going to lead the charge? And is that ultimately kind of a good thing for then setting regulation elsewhere? I think it's a good thing for them to lead the charge if they can. I think the U.S. is now going to want to come in and do what they can. But one thing I admire about the European process is they've worked with industry leaders to make sense of this very complex and new technology. I think it's hard for regulators to wrap their heads around exactly how this all works and what the risks are. And I think that's why in the U.S., the CFTC, SEC, they've been a bit slower to get around this really hard problem. So I do hope in the U.S. they'll engage with industry leaders. Michael, great to have some time with you of Dexterity Capital Managing Partner, Michael Safai. So how do you like to watch a movie? Are you in the theatre? Was that out of fashion for you? Are you sat watching it at home? It's perhaps a debate, because we're not sure how basically movies are being affected and not all of them are the same, of course. Back in 2009, just think about Avatar. It was a hit film. It was a watershed event for IMAX in particular, because to this day, it remains the highest grossing film in IMAX history. Now, the release of the long-awaited sequel, Avatar The Way of Water, has underlined what investors see as a strong case for shares of the movie theatre chains, because this, at a time when movie-going seems to kind of lost its luster, IMAX shares have fallen less than the rest of its rivals, falling only 14% in 2022, compared to think like the 26% drop that we see here in Cinemark in the blue. AMC, I don't need to tell you, down by two thirds, 66%. But IMAX, of course, kind of benefits from an environment that is split between smaller films that increasingly go direct to streaming on one hand, and the blockbusters, the ones you want to go and sit in a theatre, you want to be eating your popcorn, you want to have an immersive experience. So the release Friday of the new Avatar could prove to be the year's most foremost example of the latter. Still, according to Bloomberg data, year-to-date US box office receipts They were a third lower than levels seen back in 2019. Of course, that's the last pre-COVID year. And very different if you think about how airlines have recovered to above 2019 levels. Not the same when you're going perhaps to the movies in the cinema. Such a change, such a way in which Disney Plus, Netflix has upended the way in which we consume that maybe something like an avatar, you just can't can't experience it in your home movie experience. You've got to go, you've got to get to a theatre, you've got to put on your glasses or whatever way in which you want to consume. Meanwhile, well, food for thought, and that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal if you're lucky enough to have one, as well as online on Apple, on Spotify, and iHeart. From New York, I'm wishing Ed a wonderful time off in London at the moment. We miss him. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.